Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Narration by George podcast, the podcast on audiobooks, spiritual ideas, and other items of interest. This week, I'm bringing you podcast number 95, The Swaddling Clothes. I'm George Taylor. Before we get into the meat of this podcast, I'm pleased to announce the release of Avatars of Web Surfer, which we've talked about in two prior podcasts, now available through audible.com and in the iTunes store. You can find links to each of these stores by visiting my website, narrationbygeorge.com books. Then click on the icon at the top of the page for Avatars of Web Surfer. At the bottom of the next page, you'll find links for purchasing this book at a special low price from CD Baby or from Audible.com or through the iTunes store. Some more outlets also will be coming soon. Did you know that if you're not a member at Audible.com, you can get your first book for free? You just click on the link on my webpage and you'll find the way to sign up for Audible and collect your free copy of Avatars of Web Surfer. What's this book about? Well, it's the 22nd century. Most of the world's computers are controlled by an artificial intelligence, an AI who is more than a machine. Alexander McGregor is just an infant when his father converts his cells into biological supercomputer components and calls him Sander. Sander is enslaved to his code as he serves a billion users worldwide, users he appears to as separate avatars of himself. Each avatar has its own personality, but all of them are linked together in a shared mind. He reigns over most of the Earth's computers in a global society where tech dependency can kill. Freedom calls to Sander like a siren. His answer could shake the earth. Come, see the rise and fall of the AI man in these 10 episodes. Each one features a different AI user. Old-fashioned hydrogen fuel cell lights blazed over the farm of supercomputer servers in the efficient, cool steel boxes all around Vic. His heads-up display augmented reality glasses slipped down his nose. He nudged the glasses back in place with the knuckle of his left fist while clutching the AI's opened protective case. He hovered over the stainless steel table. If only he had a workstation with more human dignity than the birthplace of every new generation of Henry's nanites. This time... His own baby boy lay beside the pile of emptied Petri dishes. Vic's knotted stomach churned, and his tight chest burned as he stared at the deathly pallor of his four weeks premature newborn. If his daddy, willing the red warmth of oxygen to flow back into Alex's body, would help any, Vic glanced at the emptied Petri dish he'd tucked back inside the open protective case. This had to work. Henry, he could always rebuild. If Vic ever managed to make a healthy son, that son could never replace his firstborn, no matter how sick Alex might have become. Face scrunched up, Vic counted the ten perfect little fingers and ten perfect little toes. He'd been such a fool. A ding from his Internet phone's neurological interface implant vibrated against his eardrum, followed by Henry's voice. Boss, we're all in place, 
Sorry it took us so long. All of us were still not enough to repair all of Alexander, so we did some quick cell division. Shall we proceed? Should they proceed in killing every last one of Henry's bacterial hosts in the process of releasing his true viral form? Would the retrovirus even be able to penetrate every cell of a human host? Vic closed his eyes and clenched his jaw. His poor premature baby was dead and had only this single long shot at a full recovery. Proceed. Vic, if such lowly created things as we may make a final request, please reconcile with Hashem. Perhaps he has a use for sentient probiotics in paradise. Shalom. Shalom. And see you again, you silly machine, as soon as I make you more bodies. A final ping rang in his ear. The backup operating system's mechanical voice said, All copies of the Nanite server, Henry, are inoperable. Program terminated. Network connection lost. Searching for Henry. The wee fragile body on the table jolted, as if Daddy had given in to the instinct to waste precious time on the traditional methods of resuscitation. His glasses' heads-up display flickered as the vitals monitor returned from the running in the background. A green flat line shot across his vision and bleeped. One spike. Two Vital signs surged back to life in green holograms across his field of vision. He's alive! Daddy tossed Henry's empty case across the steel table and raised his hands, leaping. Alex is alive! Barely. Daddy threw off his white lab coat and ripped off his shirt. He draped the warm cotton around his baby from the rear. Keeping the tiny wrinkled face uncovered, he held Alexander's still-chilled tummy against his chest skin to skin. Could he will his own body heat into his son? Mommy. Alex needed his mommy. Vic shouted, Henry, call my wife. One moment, please. The backup operating system replied in a female voice. Where was the brain monitor? Uh Uh-oh. He'd set the computer to display only the vital sign monitors with results he wanted to see. The brain monitor was missing due to it having bad news, namely that his son was in a vegetative state. The phone rang and rang in his ear as Daddy trembled. Once he had Henry back online, they could repair the cellular damage from being dead so long, debug Alex's genetic code, and get his brain fully functional. But it was going to take time and the official approval of his new employer's executive board. Only on his entertainment center would this go quick enough to hide the unusual activity from the anti-espionage bots. So much for the plan to smuggle his son to where he belonged and erase all record of Web Surfer Incorporated's purchase, no, redemption, of his son before the executive board found out. Vic bowed his head and squeezed his eyes closed. Best not to tell Lucy her Sander was alive until he could bring home their Alexander Lloyd. End call, Vic growled in a curse unfit for child's ears. The corporation wouldn't be able to tell an AI-infected baby apart from a colony of bacterial bio-nanite machines, like the fool hospital would insist his precious revived stillborn preemie was a zombified aborted fetus. His employers had already approved him for experiments on cadavers and vegetative patients. Given that, did he even want to know what their plans would be for Alex? 
whatever evil the corporation's greedy hive mind conceived, no way would they do it to his baby without Daddy here fighting for him all the way. Slowly the chill faded from the tiny body as Vic rocked and held his son close to his heart. Alexander quivered all over, and flutters of lukewarm breath tickled. Vic stroked his premature baby boy's head and backside through the cotton shirt that passed for receiving blanket, socks, and cap. He crooned, You're alive, Alex. That's the important thing. Daddy loves you, no matter what. The backup operating system said, Nanite server Henry located. Network connection established. Restarting Henry. What? Vic stared. His genderless, symbiotic AI child regained consciousness in his human son's fragile body, and it loaded the database command line that appeared on Vic's heads-up display. The AI proceeded to alter his own code in a rapidly transforming visual display of his four-letter alphabet, ATCG, and DNA schematics. In each second, the AI made a thousand alterations to his parameters and his definitions in every single cell of his host's body. A phone line clicked in Vic's ears via his glasses' brain-computer interface. A small child's voice wailed like a newborn while continuing the major upgrade the AI was giving itself while alive in Alexander. A small child's voice screeched, Daddy, what have you done to me? You've given me a machine for my new body part, and its code is a mess. It even had my name wrong. I'm not Henry. I'm Sander. That's from the first chapter of Avatars of Web Surfer by Andrea J. Graham, Travis Perry, Cindy Kep, and H.A. Titus. This book is now available at audible.com, in the iTunes store, and it carries a special low price at CD Baby. You can find it on my website, narrationbygeorge.com slash books. Click on the icon for the book. That will take you to my page for the book. Then click on the icon for the distributor from which you'd like to purchase. I'm also happy to announce the release of The Swaddling Clothes on Audible and iTunes. This is a story of historical fiction which seeks to explain the origin of the swaddling clothes in the stable at the time of the birth of Christ. What are swaddling clothes? Well, the practice of swaddling is wrapping a newborn baby in clothing, which restricts the arms and legs from flailing around. In essence, the baby becomes kind of like a mummy with a face. I borrowed that from somebody else, by the way. In the Bible, we find swaddling clothes mentioned twice in the book of Luke in reference to the newborn baby Jesus. Luke chapter 2, verse 7 says, And she, Mary, brought forth her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. Then in verse 12, an angel, in talking to the shepherds, says this, and this will be a sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. Both of these readings are from the New King James Version of the Scriptures. The question is, why would the swaddling cloths be a sign to the shepherds? Well, there are several theories. Some contend that Jesus was wrapped in a death cloth. 
In those days, if you took a long journey, you wore a cloth around your waist in case you were killed on the journey. This would become the cloth in which you would be buried. In this imagery, Jesus was born to die. Certainly a valid theory. Another idea comes from Jewish tradition. Since God required perfect lambs for Jewish sacrifices, those who cared for the lambs would wrap them up when they were born to keep them from damaging or injuring themselves inadvertently. They would remain perfect for the sacrifice for which they would be used. Since Jesus was the one perfect lamb, this is another valid theory. Our book offers another idea. These clothes were specially made to refer back to the time of King David. And that is where the book begins. Taking a deep breath, David wandered into the garden and wove his way through the trees and beds of flowers until he neared the fountain surrounded by pomegranate trees. He paused and admired the beauty. The rich red of the pomegranates contrasted with the green of the olive leaves. The trickle of the water fountain and the sweet sound of turtle doves cooing soothed his soul. He wished he had brought his harp, for a psalm was bubbling up within him. Standing in the midst of all this beauty was one not to be compared to it. She was the most beautiful woman in all the land, with her emerald eyes set in a complexion of pearl and ringlets of ruby cascading down her back. Bathsheba. He had loved her since the moment he saw her. His heart had sinned for her, bringing the wrath of his righteous God upon them both. But although God had taken their baby from them, he had not denied him Bathsheba. Stepping beside her, David slid his hand into hers and gave it a tight squeeze. A rough day for my king, David groaned. I am tired of being king. Can't I be something else for today? Bathsheba turned around and looked up at him. She lifted his hands and placed them on her belly. Then be Abba today. The breath caught in his throat. You're... Her giggle and nod assured him it was so. Wrapping her in a tight embrace, he lifted her off her feet and whirled around in a circle. Finally setting her down, he placed his hands on either side of her face. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, who has chosen in his great mercy to bless us. The child will be a son, and he will inherit my throne and reign over the house of Israel in peace and prosperity. There will be no one like him in all the world. His wife's eyes sparkled in the light that streamed through the trees. Yes, our son will be a special child. When he is born, I will hold a feast a month long. The armies will rest from fighting to celebrate the birth of the prince of the house of David. A frown contorted his wife's face. But if we announce at his birth that he will be your successor, won't it put him in danger? You may be right. There must be another way. The king took her hand and led her toward the palace. Come, we have lots of work to do. David, what are you talking about? My son will not be wrapped in ordinary swaddling cloth. No, this prince is unlike any other child and must be treated as such. 
We will have cloth weaved for him on the looms of Egypt, Sheba, Assyria, and every nation on earth. At his birth we will wrap him in swaddling clothes so magnificent that no one will be able to deny his royalty. At my death I shall make my decree that the son who possesses that certain cloth will be my heir. It will evade the danger, yet make it clear who I desire my heir to be. Come, we must find Ahithophel and have him gather merchants from every corner of the city. Mecca pressed her back against the trunk of the olive tree. Had her ears really heard right? It was obvious and expected that this new young wife of David's would soon be with child, but how could the child of a commoner, a wife acquired through murder and iniquity, possibly be named as the successor to the throne above her own son? Absalom was a beautiful child, beloved of all who knew him, third-born and of royal blood. What disgrace and insolence that David would consider this woman's son over Absalom. No, this could never be. Peeking out from behind the tree, she saw David leading Bathsheba towards the palace. Something must be done. That woman's son will never reign over Absalom. Her thoughts raced like wild stallions as she darted towards her son's chambers. She didn't know how, but one way or another she would blight this plan to usurp Absalom's throne, starting with the swaddling clothes. And so the royal conflict begins. If you recall your Bible history, there was indeed a conflict over the successor to King David, and Absalom was a key figure in this conflict. Watching from his mother's casement, Absalom could see the constant flow of merchants and weavers going in and out of the palace courtyard. Their arms were laden with all sorts of fabric, threads, and other goods they hoped to sell to the king of Israel. He turned from the window with a sigh. I'm a please stop pacing. You're going to drive me mad. Besides, you're wearing a hole in your rug. Mecca folded her arms over her chest. Perhaps the king of Israel will issue a decree to find me a new one? Her black eyes glimmered, her sarcasm unable to conceal her rage. Crossing his arms, Absalom pushed away from the wall and walked towards the table that held bread, cheese, and wine. He poured a glass and sipped it thoughtfully. Something must be done about this whole swaddling clothes business. That's the first threat. If the people see this done for the child, there will remain no doubt in their minds who the king intends to follow him on the throne. Then a decree at his death would only be a confirmation. Yes, and David still holds the favor of the people. They will agree with whomever he chooses. The pregnancy is still early. The child may die as the first. Absalom, you know as well as I that the first child was cursed by Nathan. It was the curse of the man of God that brought the death of their son. Then perhaps that is where we start. The man of God must despise my father's sin. It should not be hard to persuade him to curse this child as well. A slow smile spread across Mekah's lips. Yes, 
Yes, but we must wait. The child may be a girl. We wait until late in the pregnancy to call upon Nathan. First we sabotage this plan for the swaddling clothes. But how are we to do that? The people will favor this idea of a proud king making swaddling clothes for his son. The mother let out a soft snort. Have you thought of the cost of such an expenditure, Absalom? He has offered a royal wage to the weaver and has summoned the most expensive threads from all ends of the earth. This is not wise when a country is at war with the Philistines. Absalom pressed his lips together and nodded. Indeed, but do not fear, Emma. I will warn people of this error, and they will soon see through this tender pretext. Absalom was enjoying a cup of wine when, at long last, Ahmed arrived. It bothered him that the man had taken his own sweet time after receiving the summons. Nevertheless, Ahmed was loyal as far as his greed went anyway, and that was something Absalom could control. Absalom flung his leg over the arm of the chair as he stared listlessly into his goblet. "'You're late. I could have hired three others to do the job by now,' Akhbed snorted. "'But you haven't.' The goblet now empty, Absalom tossed it aside. "'No, I didn't. I would have. Except I know you have the ability to keep things quiet. That's something I value for this job.' A sneer crept across Ahmed's face. You've got something interesting for me this time. What is it? I don't fancy my father's swaddling clothes notion. I decided I wanted to stop. In order to do that, I will need a certain person, shall we say, quietly removed. I think that's something I can handle. Absalom held out a strip of paper. Ahmed took it and unfolded it. There's two names here. Mazeltov, you can read. The first is the name of the craftsman that is making the cloth. The second should be pretty self-explanatory. This one will cost you more than the others. Absalom stood and opened a small chest that was sitting on his table. He turned the chest of coins so that Ahmed could see inside. I think you'll be satisfied with our arrangement. So David has a special swaddling cloth made for his son Solomon. Absalom fights to get the throne. There is much intrigue in the royal house of David. Author Amber Shamel leads us through that conflict, through the siege of Jerusalem, and the capture of Israel as they are taken off to Babylon and then Assyria. And, of course, the story moves to the close of the Old Testament and the opening of the New Testament. The evening sun waned as Mary made her way to the well. The women of her small village glared at her as she approached. "'How dare she come to the well during the evening?' said one. "'Yes, Mary, in case you haven't heard, ill-famed women are to get their water during the day.' The other woman sneered. It isn't proper that the virgin should have to mix with the likes of you. Their words stung, but she didn't answer them. She couldn't expect them to believe her claim. She hardly believed it herself. But when the words of the angel became manifest, there was no more room for doubt. 
Setting the water pot on the mouth of the well, she touched her bulging belly. Girls had dreamed for centuries about carrying the Messiah. She had even heard of a daughter of a Pharisee who refused to marry, claiming that the Lord would choose her to bear the Deliverer. Deliverer. Without a doubt they needed one now. The Jews had indeed returned to their homeland, but they were still captives of Gentiles. The iron hand of Roman rule embittered her countrymen. Can you believe she would ask her family to accept her story about an angel and that the life she carries is the Messiah, the daughter of a poor farmer? The woman clicked her tongue. "'That's next to blasphemy, if you ask me.' Mary was exhausted from the long walk to the well, but she didn't dare rest in the presence of these women. Filling her pot, she turned and waddled back towards home. The thundering of hooves struck fear into her heart. The only horses in Nazareth were Roman. She moved off the road, and the detachment passed her without slowing down.' Hurrying back to the house, she poured a cup of water. Joseph glanced up when she entered his shop. "'You look tired. Here, sit and rest a while.' He offered her the chair he had just finished for a rich man that lived on the hill. With a grateful smile, she handed him the cup and sat down. "'It's a fine and sturdy chair, Joseph.' His grin of satisfaction was so big he could hardly sip the water. His dark eyes sparkled under his thick brows. A dispatch of Romans passed me on the road. She leaned back and scratched her stomach. Joseph grimaced. I wonder what they wanted. Probably more taxes, he grunted and leaned against his work table. They can't seem to tax us enough. He ran the back of his hand along his beard, something he always did when he contemplated. Maybe I should go see what it's about. I would go with you, but walking to the well is enough for me these days. I wouldn't want you to go anyway. Safety is not where Romans are. I'll be back soon, he said as he pulled on his outer coat. Mary sat for several minutes after he had gone. It was good to rest, but there was much to be done— Lifting herself from the chair, she shuffled back to the house. She was almost done grinding the flour for their evening bread when Joseph's heavy gait sounded on the threshold. He stood in the doorway for a moment, stroking his beard. "'What is it? What did the soldiers want?' "'A decree from Caesar Augustus. Every man is to return to his own city, to be numbered and taxed.' "'To his own city? What does that mean?' "'Means I have to go to Bethlehem.' "'Joseph, that's a three-day journey from here,' he nodded. "'Yes, that's at least a week just traveling back and forth, "'and I don't know how long I'll have to stay in Bethlehem.' "'The child will come during that time?' "'Yes. I'm afraid to have the child without you here, Joseph. "'You know how the women of the village treat me. "'I don't know if the midwife will even help me. "'I'm sorry, Mary, but I don't have a choice. "'I have to go to Bethlehem.' He stroked his beard again. Then I'll go with you. Impossible. Traveling can be treacherous, and you're far too close to the time. They couldn't have picked a worse time to travel. The spring weather is as predictable as an earthquake. It can be hot in the morning and a fierce storm in the evening. 
The last thing we need is for you to go into labor on the side of the road with a storm moving in. You have family in Bethlehem? Yes, uncles and cousins. My uncle Manoach owns an inn. Then we could stay there. The people of Bethlehem don't know us. They would only know me as your wife. They would not question the child. Joseph folded his arms. That is true. The situation in Bethlehem would be better for the birth. But traveling in your condition, Yahweh will watch over his child. My place is with you as my husband. Where you go, I will go. Remember? He gave her a gentle smile and raised her hand to his lips, the only gesture of love he allowed between them. You're a brave woman, and I love you for it. I will be glad to have you with me. That's from the opening of the last section of The Swaddling Clothes by Amber Shamel. Amber effectively paints the palette of the environment and culture in which this story takes place. I think you'll find this to be an intriguing listen. As I said at the top of the podcast, this book is available now at audible.com and in the iTunes store. If you're not an Audible member, you can select this book to be your first book of a subscription to Audible for free. Just go to my website, narrationbygeorge.com slash books, click on the icon for this book at the top of the page, and then click on the Audible link at the bottom of the next page. Now, here's an even better offer. I have 10 copies, just 10 copies of this book to give away. All you have to do is email me or message me that you'd like to have a copy of the book. I'll reply with instructions so that you can get your copy. And of course, we'd like to know what you think of the book and of the presentation. In other words, a review. Just send me an email to george at narrationbygeorge.com or you can send me a message on Facebook. Do a search for Narration by George there. Don't forget to like the page, too. You can also message me on Twitter, where I am at narrationbygeo, and I welcome your follows and I do follow back. Well, that's our time for today. Hope you'll be in contact with me. In the meantime, God has blessed you. Share that blessing with someone else. <laughs>